This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, December 19th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Donald Trump went from president-designate to president-elect, thanks to the machinations of the Electoral College and the men who set up that institution to favor rural voters and, to a large extent, slavery. It might not be true Republican democracy, but by gum, it's almost good enough, some argue. You know... If the Electoral College weren't in the Constitution, it would be illegal. Seriously, in recent years, the Supreme Court has upheld the principle of, they used to call it one man, one vote, that sings but is sexist, so one person, one vote. And they've dissolved local governments that give more weight to certain parts of town or certain boroughs or certain townships. Because one person, one vote is the American principle, except when electing the principal American. Then it's one Wyomingite, equals four Floridians. Seriously, when a Florida elector casts his or her vote for Donald Trump, they represent 325,000 Floridians, right? There are 9 million or so votes divided by their 29 electoral votes. But when a Wyoming elector casts his or her vote, actually, I checked that it's probably a her, unless it's Carl Allred, then it's definitely a him. But anyway, that Wyoming elector represents only 82,000 Wyomingites. And I personally represent the entire whole of Wyoming when I say you are going to enjoy our show today. Our spiel is about those who passed in the year past. And today, too late for inclusion, in this list was Zsa Zsa Gabor. Late December 2016, we lost a great, a great being defined as someone for whom a last name is irrelevant or superfluous. You got Prince. A year ago, there was Meadowlark Lemon. You know, no one ever says, wait. Meadow, which Meadowlark? Meadowlark who? Meadowlark Huffnagel? Zsa's coming over. Zsa Goldfarb? No. Zsa Gabor. They will be missed. Although the BBC used Zsa's passing as a means to throw some shade at her successors. Some people describe her or talk about her as a kind of proto-Kardashian, um, though uh, that probably underestimates uh, the woman's uh, charm and cleverness. All right. I'm doing a public service now. I will now rank the Kardashians and the Gabors in order. One, Kim. Two, Northwest. Three, Ava. Four, Robert. Five, Jaja. Six, Chloe. Seven, Rob. Eight, Magda. And of course, and last is Courtney. But first, here's Steve Johnson. Polymath, polyglot, polydecahedron, for all I know, on the wonder-working powers of pleasure. It's Wonderland. So 
So Peter Piper, as you know, picked a pack of pickled peppers. Perhaps you're not impressed, but what if I told you that Peter Piper might have actually been Pierre Poivre, the much more suave Pierre Poivre. And while Run DMC did intone that Peter Piper picked peppers, but Run rapped rhymes, I'm thinking of another rapper, Eminem. Just the verbal acuity, the dexterity. When Eminem was in his prime, he just couldn't stop thinking. And that reminds me of Steven Johnson. His new book is called Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. His past books are How We Got to Now, Where Good Ideas Come From, The Invention of Air, The Ghost Map, and Everything is Bad for You. He's just one of these guys that has so many profound ideas that go in so many different directions. (laughs) And maybe, and this is the thesis of the new book, maybe it all comes from play. Play, Stephen Johnson? Play? (laughs) Play indeed, yeah. It's a book about the things that people did for no good reason other than the fact that they were fun, right? Right. That did not have some kind of survival value or or kind of direct utilitarian value, but that were enjoyable or surprising or delightful or interesting. And the idea of the folk wisdom that necessity is the mother of invention, that let's hold that up and let's say actually, and that's where your book comes in. Yeah, because it's not just, I mean, I think actually the history of things that people did for fun is an interesting history to tell, but the argument that the book is trying to make is that these seemingly trivial pursuits ended up leading to all these breakthrough ideas in science, in technology, in in politics, changing the map of the world, literally. So if you think about the kind of the prime movers of history, what are the forces that drive historical change? You would normally say, well, the quest for power or nationalism or Mm -hmm. religious resources, all that stuff. But in fact, the pursuit of delight and amusement, that is a force that deserves to to be on the kind of the main stage of our understanding of historical change. So you quote Brian Eno, and this is really useful to read early on. It's not the things we need, it's the things we want. And the things we want wind up defining us, wind up becoming the things we need. The things that we all can't live without start off as the things we want. Yeah, Eno has this great, he he describes it as, um, he's talking about kind of his definition of art, which is a very generous definition. The definition is all the things we don't have to do. Yes. (laughs) But, you know, we have to wear some kind of clothes to keep ourselves warm. We don't have to wear a beautiful, like, purple frock of a certain shade um, that is fashionable. Now, you mentioned purple. That's interesting. Tell me about purple. So, there's a chapter, the opening chapter, uh, the main part of the book is on the history of fashion and, and shopping. And there was this snail that lived uh, in the shallow waters of the Mediterranean that thousands of years ago, people figured out you could extract this kind of purple dye from from actually harvesting hundreds or thousands of these snails. And so this shade of purple became one of the most valuable dyes in, in the world, and these snails became very valuable. And it was called Tyrian purple, and it became a sign of royalty or aristocracy for, for years. And, and actually, there's an old Roman expression of being born to the purple means that you are uh, well-born. Mm-hmm. And it's a classic example of a case where this is clearly, uh, there's no evolutionary advantage to the <laughs> to wearing something draped in purple. It doesn't help you fight disease or you know do anything functional. And in fact, the pursuit of these snails was really the first thing that compelled people. Once they started kind of running out of snails inside the Mediterranean, it's one of the it was really the first major force that drove people out the Mediterranean into the open waters of the Atlantic. So that epic 
you know, transformation for the first time Mediterranean societies are, are designing ships that can travel on the open Atlantic. It was really in pursuit of this color. Okay, so some of the innovation, and it's really important that people realize it's the things we want, not the things we need. That is the defi- the broad definition yeah. of play. And that's why, for instance, when I was talking about Peter Poiv, taste is a chapter. Taste isn't a game, but it is something we want. And because of the taste for spice, it led to great innovation. Now, what I wanted to ask you is I've always read that spice was more of a necessity to keep food preserved. It wasn't something that we could live without, essentially. But you're saying actually it was. Yeah. So first, just setting the context, we have a global economy because of the interest in spices. I mean, the first truly global uh, marketplace was the marketplace for spices. Up until the late 1700s, every single clove consumed anywhere in the world was grown on one of five islands uh, near Indonesia. And that Um, big island. Those are the spice islands, these tiny little volcanic islands, right? And there are cloves that have been found preserved in ancient Babylonian uh, sites that are something like three, 4,000 years old. And so that meant that those cloves had traveled, you know, in 2000 BC, uh, farther than any human being had ever traveled from a part of the world that no one in Babylonia had any knowledge of. And so we have this integrated for the first time kind of marketplace, global economy because of the taste for spices. And there is this story that was a conventional way of telling it for years and years and years that spices were there to make food edible. But if you look at the marketplace, there's been a kind of backlash against that idea. Um, If you look at who was paying for things like pepper when pepper was worth its weight in gold or, or even more, it was really the super wealthy elite and royal families of all sorts across Europe. And they had access to fresh meat. Yeah. Um, so they really didn't have the kind of spoiling problems. And so they they were paying this incredible amount of money for spices because yes. it, it was delightful on the tongue. It was interesting. They now, could slaughter the cattle right from their backyard. They could order the goose slaughtered. They just liked it they better liked it. with a little They just liked it. Spice. Now, the one thing that, that is true is that there was a belief at the time that there were medicinal values here. So they thought it was more functional. They liked the taste and the flavor, and that drove a lot of the initial interest in it. And then a whole largely quack science of of medicine using spices developed around these things. And so it was, uh, you know, there was a functional side of it that that was actually inaccurate, but but it was part of the You're just rubbing salt in the wounds of that theory, (laughs) my friend. So let's get to Peter Piper himself, which isn't a mainstay of the book, but I thought was really interesting. This is the rhyme Peter Piper picked up might have actually come from this guy. Yeah, he was this crazy kind of figure who had been obsessed with the idea that some of these spices that were growing exclusively uh, in the Spice Islands and and the kind of the Far East could be grown somewhere else. Who's French. And there's this incredible story of kind of horticultural espionage where he goes and tries to steal these little seedlings, basically nutmeg and clove. I think I can't remember which the actual spices are. And he he's carrying them fr- from, you know, islands off of Indonesia all the way back to Madagascar. He's trying to get them to grow in, in Madagascar and reunion and, and those islands that were at the time controlled by the French. And he nearly gets killed at a couple of points. And this bounty that he's carrying are just these little sprouts. And as he's coming back, the sprouts start to die. And there's a theory that they were actually poisoned by the Dutch. He's trying to get it basically out of control of, of the Dutch. So in a sense, control over these little plants was this almost like a kind of intellectual property in a way that they had. Right. That that if, if these seeds could be brought somewhere else and brought to some kind of flowering, uh, it would be a massive economic blow to the Dutch. And so this guy who we think is the Peter 
Piper picked a peck of pickled well, peppers. Well, literally guy. is yeah. Peter Pepper. The yeah. Suave is Pepper. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. It's a crazy story. So how much of the line from delight, wonder to uh, what we think of as necessity or innovation, how much of it is just because smart people who would one day innovate start off as children, as most of us do, and therefore, you know, the thing that attracts their interest is more likely to be a toy than, you know, some advanced serious thing. There is something about the cognitive exploration of play. When you're interested in things, you're surprised by things, you're drawn to things that confound your expectations in some kind of engaging way. The kind of thinking that you have to do when you're at play, watching little kids invent rules to a game, right? That's what little kids do. Until they get kind of structured into Little League, part of the the fun of play as a little kid is like, what are the rules? We're going to invent an entire new game here. That's a very creative form of thinking. And people who keep that alive later in, in life end up being you know, more innovative people, more adaptive to changing unpredictable circumstances. And a lot of innovators and innovating in ways that we would think are serious and in the realm of the the necessary, they look at what they do as a game. You always hear that from programmers, from, you know, it was a game to crack. It was a code to crack. Do you have any insight? uh, I'm going to guess yes. But do you have any insight about the idea of certain pursuits, certain leisure pursuits are a waste of time? In general, that has been proven untrue. Probably if you go throughout history, they probably said that to people playing chess. Now, chess is, you know, in all the schools. They definitely said it to the kid who liked comic books. There was a moral panic over that. Now those people are defining our culture. Is the lesson that every single thing that we ever pointed to uh, to a child and said, you know what, it's time to put aside childish things. Those things are a waste of time. We're always wrong. Or is there a category of thing that's more likely to spark innovation and a category of thing that actually might be a waste of time? It's possible that things can be generative and important and lead to breakthrough ideas. And also at the same time, because they're so addictive or because people get so obsessed with them because they're so delightful, they do end up wasting a lot of time. Yes. At the same, and so, you know, there's an interesting riff in the book about uh, coffee houses when coffee came to – particularly to London. The, London just went insane for coffee houses and, and – there were just all these people were just spending all their days in 1680 hanging out in these coffee houses. And Charles II actually banned them because he issued a formal decree saying no more coffee houses because it's distracting people from their lawful calling and affairs. Um, they're not getting work done and they're hanging out all day long. And that decree lasted one week. Because <laughs> people are like, no, you can't take it. We're addicted to this drug and we love these coffee houses. Right. But the important thing was, he's like, look, I assassinate my political enemies, but I cannot <laughs> yeah, I can't anything. touch the coffee. Don't, oh, yeah. don't give it to me in my coffee. But he was wrong because the coffee houses then became really the engine of the enlightenment and, and business revolutions, tech revolutions, political revolutions, and so on. If you believe to any degree that capitalism is this positive, for all its flaws, this positive driving force in society, what are you embracing other than people should be able to pursue that which makes them happy. Do what you want to do. It doesn't surprise me at all that if you embrace fashion as opposed to, you know, being a Puritan, you'll get more innovation. Yeah. And I think just taking measure of how much of the modern world around us, just built structures around us, are now exclusively devoted to creating entertaining leisure spaces from amusement parks to movie theaters, whatever. And that's um, most of those things did not exist 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Although it was uh, another media thinker like yourself amusing ourselves, ourselves to, to death, death yeah. was the idea. And I always thought yeah. that was a little bit overwrought. And yet, 
when you look at our moment when we've embraced this entertainer as yeah. as as a leader with not too many other qualifications other than he says the things that stroke my id, you begin to wonder. It'll be interesting <laughs> to see. We we've had a long period where the things that Neil Postman, who wrote "Amusing right. Ourselves to Death," um, was concerned about that the television in particular was dumbing us down and we were becoming this visual culture and we were moving away from the word. All, all those things that he was writing about in the, in the 80s actually, I think, did not happen, right? Yeah. The internet shows up. People become much more textual. There's a lot more reading because uh, uh, of the early days of the web. And television gets... I mean, we obviously lived in the live now in the golden age of television. Yeah. It got much more complicated. It became a true art form. You wrote a whole book about yeah, this. exactly. Yeah. And and then in politics, we we've, we've had a nice stretch of progress on a lot of fronts over the last eight years. And it does seem as though some of those developments, like the internet, um, uh, and obviously recent political events, are taking a step backwards now and it's going to be interesting to see where we are in two or four years but then again let's recognize the trend that we always look at the innovation and how if it's different and have a worry and a panic about it like you write about malls and then there was yeah. this other book the mauling of america possibly also written by neil postman for all i remember but now that malls mall culture have begun to subside there's a nostalgia for them and i think there's even a legitimacy to some degree talking about remember when we used to have to go to a mall and you could it was an actual physical space and it could make a statement about a community and now it's all online. So yeah. all these innovations, be it the internet, be it malls, we, we always go through this. We always are a little bit put off, afraid of technology. And then maybe only when it wanes do we say, hey, that more than was just something to put up with. That had a salubrious effect. And uh, the, the issue, though, is that we, we used to have a lot of time to figure out what technologies were, were good for. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the book, I talk about how long it took cinema to figure out, you know, it took about 30 years for, for the kind of technical innovations around this new form, including sound, but also things like the close-up. Like that turned, the close-up turned to be, turned out to be one of the central ingredients in the power of movies, which you could shoot people close to their face and see them. And that just unlocked a whole world of kind of psychic identification that the audience had with their people. But it took a long time to figure that out. And we now have this situation where the platforms are advancing faster. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of playing catch up. We suddenly were like, wait, hold on, social media. Maybe it creates this opportunity for fake news. We have, you know, like it's already swamped us. Yeah. What if uh, Henry Ford, what if the Model T went 75 miles an hour? Right, right, right off the bat. Yeah. Maybe cars would be, even though cars have been a good thing in general for yeah. our society, if that were the case, maybe there'd be a different story. The, the one thing that's encouraging, I think, is that we are much better at talking about the unanticipated cultural and political effects of new technologies. I yeah. mean, I, I've been writing about these things for, for more than 20 years now. And when I first started writing about technology in this way, it was actually... It was hard to do. It was hard. There weren't that many people doing it. And, you know, you would say, well, I want to write about – so I remember pitching a piece in like 1994 about software – it, it becoming a kind of political way of looking at the world. And it was kind of Mac versus Windows at right. the time or Mac versus PC. And I just remember so many baffled editors being like – "But." When we write about software, it's called product reviews, and we give things like three mice. Well, you know, that's, that's how we do it. The gatekeepers were of a generation yeah. that laid out the headlines in, in on actual tables, and now you're writing for net natives. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, but I, you know, as yes, we could have this discussion, but as we are having this discussion, literally on this podcast, as a certain slice of the intelligentsia is grappling with it in a great way, millions of kids are going on Snapchat and doing things that right. may be appalling. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them may be my kids. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderland, how play made the modern world by Steven Johnson. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. And now the spiel. I want to do a remembrance of those who passed, but I edited my list to only include those who maybe don't come to mind immediately. The effect I'm going for is something like, oh, that's right, he died, or ah, I remember that, or wait, she was still alive? So oh, not Prince, not David Bowie, not Muhammad Ali. Those, those guys are on the top of your mind, I'm sure. Maybe there'll be one or two in this list who you remember. But as I selected from the list of luminaries, what I did was, what's the best way the gist can remember these people? And I thought, you know, the, the most touching and sensitive fitting would be to pair these people with some quasi-inappropriate wordplay. For instance, I have to admit that news of the passing of Henry Heimlich got me a little choked up. At first, I thought it was a gag, but no. He did live to be the age of 95 and now has a clear passageway to the next life. For some, like Dodger great Ralph Branca, I just wish their deaths would wait till next year. For others, like Arnold Palmer, I ask, what's it all for? For we come from the earth, and to the earth we must return. This was the case for Maurice White, who not only returned to the earth, but also the wind and the fire, often for many benefit concerts on PBS. Death came suddenly to some, like Antonin Scalia, who could not have been surprised or even disappointed. As a devout Catholic, he knows not to question the Lord's original intent. May his soul rise to heaven. This would be the worst time for the jurist to be part of a dissent. Yes, some like Scalia were believers. Where infidel Castro, we have a revolutionary and an atheist who was the target of CIA poisoning plots, but no cigar. Fidel was bad news for sure. Others like English actor Kenny Baker are too good for this earth. No matter how bad a man is, some hate to speak ill of the dead. I'm on morally safer ground when I praise the 60-minute journalist, morally safer, a man of intellect and empathy who brings to mind this famous literary quote. If you could learn a simple trick, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You can never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. That was said by one of the great characters in all of literature, Hannibal Lecter. Oh, wait, no, I'm being told it was Atticus Finch, the creation of the departed Harper Lee. Lee, for almost her entire life, authored one book as did her co-departed celebrity, Big Ange, from VH1's Mob Wives. Hers was called Bigger is Better, Real Life Wisdom from the No Drama Mama. And Big Ange's literary achievements did not seem to rival To Kill a Mockingbirds. But then Harper Lee's lawyer and agent found some early version of her masterwork. She packaged it up. And now Harper Lee is known by the kids today as the author of the mediocre Ghost Set a Watchman, starring that racist a-hole Atticus Finch. Whereas Mockingbird was precise and glorious, Watchmen was halting and muddled. Go set a Watchman. Yeah, it's around 4, maybe 4.30. Let's say 5-ish. Finkel. 5-ish Finkel. 
the star of Yiddish theater and picket fences, passed away in 2016. Interesting Fivish Finkel fact. He was born Phil. Philip Finkel changed his name to Fivish. Absolutely true. He did it to be a better box office attraction in the Yiddish theater. How much more money could he earn? Yeah, about five-ish. We remember young, old blue eyes, Frank Sinatra Jr., and actress Patty Duke, who only got paid once, even though she played cousins. Identical cousins. Two of a kind. That was in an era before TV shows needed premises. And on February 16th, we lost Mike Greenstein at the age of 95. Who? Well, his dad was Joe Greenstein. Joe Greenstein built himself as the mighty Adam, and he performed feats of strength around America. So Mike did the same thing, built himself as mighty Adam Jr. And I will read a line from his obit. Living his later years in Rockaway, Queens, Greenstein was a strength athlete by profession. Known as the mighty Adam Jr., he was capable of pulling a car with his bare teeth nearly to his dying day, but not beyond thus thwarting his plans to be his own pallbearer. So Greenstein died, as I said, on February 16th, and they say bad news usually comes in threes. Well, it did, because on that day, we also saw the passing of former UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali. The day prior to that, Dutch football player Hans Posthumus passed away, fulfilling his destiny. Similarly, in 2016, we saw the death of Alan Rickman, Younger generations know the English actor as Professor Snape in the Harry Potter films, but those of my generation, well, we remember Rickman as the evil mastermind in Die Hard, Hans Gruber, whose death scene gave new meaning to the phrase, look ma, no Hans. And I will end with a quote from When the Dolphins Leave the Earth in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, as well as what fans of Barney Miller and Tessio said of the leathery, droll character actor whose door countenance encapsulated so much of the downtroddenness of the 70s. Abe Vigoda died. He actually really did die this time. So long and thanks for all the fish. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson produces The Gist, and she's just wondering all day, what's this about a faceless elector? Chris Berube, Gist producer, looked into the rules. There's no retinal scan, no photo ID required. Why is everyone talking about the faceless elector? Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is rolling his eyes at stories of the faceless elector. Why? Because he can. Privilege. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, wonders if the faceless elector really could change her vote. From a purely logistical standpoint, can you do an about-face if you don't start off with a face? The Gist, now written with help from Emily Latilla. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.